Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Aspiring Spirit. In this episode, I will be discussing an experience that my son had in a school he attended when he was a child. And the book that I'm going to be referring to was read to the class by his kindergarten teacher. So as you hear me reference that, please keep that in the back of your mind. But also know that this is an attempt to open up a conversation, and this will not be the last time I discuss this issue of how we balance the perspectives of parents and community members with educational pursuits. I am wearing my parent hat in this episode in the sense that I'm speaking from my personal experience, and I also know that I work with many educators who mean well for our young people, and they are often not in charge of the content they believe that they need to teach. And as a school committee member, we also don't make decisions on curriculum and content. But what I am trying to say is that it's worth us listening to each other and it's worth the time that it will take to do that. Thank you. Greetings and thank you for joining me for another episode of the Aspiring Spirit podcast. In this episode, I offer a reflection on some of the pain points and points of contention with regard to educating young children today, particularly in public schools, but generally throughout, including independent schools in the United States. This is my personal reflection and does not reflect any organizations that I work for or with. I recently saw a post on Instagram by a parent saying that it is sad to see childhood being destroyed as adults attempt to validate themselves. I actually thought about that comment for a little bit and I could see what the parent was referring to. I am also a parent, I am also an educator who does work with K-12 school systems. I'm also on the school committee for my town and I work in a higher education institution. I can say firsthand that many of the adjustments and changes that we are seeing in our educational system began as intentions to help young people come into present times. And sometimes it was coined as being responsive to governmental regulations and guidance, parental and community feedback, as well as student feedback. So with that being the case, I'm going to take my own advice that I give when I share professional development with educators and others. And I assume good intentions. What I am noticing, however, is when we are well-intended, but only look from the lens of adults, we can often miss the ways that we are adultifying young children's intentions and interests. One example I'll give is from my very own experience. I certainly believe that children should learn that no matter what the color of a person's skin is, we are all 
equal. And even if the color of one's skin has meant, and in some cases continue to mean, that people will treat you differently, or think of you differently, or you will have different experiences, nonetheless, it doesn't take away from the fact that we are created equally, in my eyes and in the eyes of many who believe that human beings are created equally despite their race. Now, with that being the case, I objected to a teacher teaching my son about race and racism when he was in kindergarten. What was interesting to me is that as a parent, I was not forewarned that this lesson was going to happen. They had been doing some very interesting lessons around skin tone variations and they would do self-portraits and it all seemed very affirming. But that's about as much as I wanted him to do in kindergarten, to just know that the way he looked was perfectly fine and beautiful and natural and to be essentially not necessarily elevated, but just acknowledge that it was natural, normal, and just as good as anyone else's. However, the lesson went further. And for Martin Luther King weekend, the students had books to read about Martin Luther King. The book in particular my son read included depictions of Martin Luther King being shot and depictions of blood and guns. And at the time he was five, so he didn't articulate to me right away what he was upset about, but he did begin to have nightmares and make mention of it eventually. He brought home a book from the school library and the book was about the history of guns in the Confederacy. Now, mind you, he was five years old. He was reading at a very advanced rate and so he seemed to be following along, but I noticed what the book was about and I asked him if I could keep it with me. And I made an appointment with the school to find out why my son had been allowed to select this book from the school library. Well, when I met with the head of school at the time, she indicated that sometimes this is the way that children might want to process something they're worried about. And this is where we began to talk about the book that he mentioned and that as a parent, I found it disturbing and inappropriate for him to have access to and be allowed to check out a book about the history of gun making and guns, which they said came from the middle school section. At no point did the educators I was meeting with believe that I had a right to be concerned or upset. They told me that children will learn these things in the world and that I was being overly concerned. Many of the listeners here who know me personally know that my son, Ian, passed away at the age of seven. He didn't stay in that school because I had the means to do something different that I preferred for him. I wanted a school that was not as aggressive in their desire to socialize him about the world. And I wanted a school that was going to protect what I consider to be his childhood innocence and my ability to decide when, how, and if he should learn about certain social issues. The school and I parted ways by agreeing to disagree. And there were probably a little 
handful of parents who I knew personally who heard about the incident agreed with me, but because they had a different teacher, didn't have the issue come up for them. I mentioned to some of the other parents that because my son was in a brown body, he started to ask questions about whether he was safe in his brown body because he had come to wonder whether that made it likely that someone would do to him what they had done to Martin Luther King. Now we can debate about when someone should learn about the history of racism in the United States, but I can tell you viscerally as a parent, I had no interest in my son becoming afraid to be in his brown body at the age of five. And as a parent, I felt like I did not have the opportunity to protect him from that kind of knowledge. Now, thankfully, I feel like we had time to course correct and to get him feeling safe again and to allow him to believe that he could still play, he could still be a boy, he could still enjoy school. And he did that. He has a story that is just one example of what I think some parents are trying to get at. There are many other examples I can share with you that mental health experts, social workers, teachers, other parents have brought to my attention, have asked me to think about or have shared. Of course, I would not breach anyone's confidentiality. But I will tell you, there are many parents who mean well and want to work with our educators. But we have to consider on the education front in terms of policy and practice, where the boundaries are and where they are appropriate. We do a disservice to our children if we are trying to teach them things we think will help them, but we do it at a pace and in a way that is developmentally inappropriate for them. Also, while we act in the stead of a community partner for children that are in our care, in local parentis, meaning we are like caregivers and guiders, we are not in fact their parents. And so how do we balance the desire parents have to guide and rear their children in ways that are compatible with their family's values and beliefs, while at the same time preparing young people to live in a world where we have to consider the common good, safety, and fairness of all. I believe we have a lot of reckoning to do with how we are going about educating our young people. I have had scores of young people tell me how stressed they are at the types of things they're being asked to consider, whether it's about their own identity. When identity formation happens for a long time, in fact, throughout high school into our early 20s, our brain is maturing and we are clarifying who we are. And yet we are asking elementary age children and high schoolers to define themselves in ways that are permanent or very public 
that they sometimes feel like they cannot change and they cannot reverse out of for fear of being canceled or shunned or considered a hypocrite. It is painful to watch as a parent and as an educator. I don't want us to have a look back period in 20 years and say we went too far. Even as I encourage educators to be thoughtful and responsive to the students they're teaching. I do not think it is our purview to overstep in areas that affect children's well-being. Communities deserve to be listened to. Parents deserve to be listened to. And in this dialogue and conversation and ongoing feedback loop that is guided by what we know is best for young children when it comes to pacing and information, we may actually be able to help them soothe some of the crises they're feeling. After moving Ian from that school, I saw this really great slogan that sticks with me today. And it talks about how childhood is a journey and not a race. As adults, we are free to choose the lives we want and to believe whatever we want. And we have parents who are here for young children who in their healthiest of states are going to guide their children to well-being And schools and other organizations are also here when working with children to support their well-being. Let us listen to the children. Let us not just listen to the stories that validate our adult viewpoints, but also the stories that tell us we're moving too fast, we're pushing too much, and perhaps the content we are sharing is not appropriate at the time that children are hearing it. So should we be responsive to the environment children are coming from to make sure that we are accentuating what is good about those environments, whether it's that the children speak multiple languages, have a household where it's intergenerational and they help with siblings and have access to wonderful stories from grandparents so we are inclusive of those types of realities? That is all good. Culturally responsive teaching is not just about looking at someone's race and including depictions of that in a classroom. That is gravely misunderstood. Responsive teaching is acknowledging the environments our children come from and helping them to see what their assets are as we are teaching them. Areas where parents have concerns and value differences should not be pushed aside for the sake of political expediency or for the sake of being accepted by what is perceived to be the broader public. I'm speaking on behalf of myself, but in loving memory of my son Ian and in my love for children and their well-being. I'm also speaking for many of the parents who are frankly afraid 
to say that they are uncomfortable. And again, the educators, social workers, and mental health experts who tell me they fear for their jobs if they say they are concerned for the content and environment that young people are finding themselves in as we move faster and faster down a track of conformity and a track where we are listening less to those who are responsible full-time for those children, their parents and guardians. Let us not make that mistake. Let us take the time to pause, value, and respect those different perspectives. We owe that to our young people. Thanks for listening.